You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. I would like to just start with a word of prayer. Um, Yeah, We're going to open God's word, so let's invite him to speak to us. Lord, we want to thank you for your message that you've given to us. We thank you for this word that, that tells us about who you are, that tells you about our, our, your love for us and, and how we can be saved. And Lord, we're so grateful that you, are, um, that you are a God who discloses himself, that you are a God who speaks. And so we thank you for that. And we pray that you would um, make us attentive to your ear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our Christmas series is entitled Uncomfortably Close. Just so you know, I never get any say on what the, on what the, the, the titles are going to be. Um, I, I, I made a suggestion once, I think, in, in 2019 and got shot down. <laughs> so I, I just want you to know that this term, uncomfortably close, didn't come from me. Because when Aaron told me what it was, I'm like, it sounds like a bad slogan for the airline industry, right? You know, if you want to travel by air, we will make sure that you get uncomfortably close. In our, um, in our Canadian culture, nobody likes to get too close, physically or emotionally. And it's, my, it's been my observation that that sentiment is, it would, would ring equally true in the world as it is in the church. I recently heard a story about a woman who found out that she had cancer, didn't want anyone in the church to know. And, I'm, and you ask yourself, how does, that, how does that happen? You know, I always kind of turn those questions inward on myself. Because if I'm perfectly honest, I could say over the years that there were people who sat beside me at church sometimes for years, and I didn't know, I didn't really know them. They didn't really share their life with me. But the reality is I wasn't an open book either. We're taught from a young age, don't air your laundry in public, dirty or otherwise. Always show your best side, always put your best foot forward, keep a stiff upper lip, don't let them see you sweat. In truth, when my kids were small, if I knew they were going to go to someone else's house, I always had the same encouragement. Do not tell any family secrets. And in fact, my daughter, Sama, still jokes that I could silence her with the most imperceptible nod, something like this, right? Just to say, you're talking too much, you're giving away too much. You know, I don't think my, my experience is unique. I think that people shy away from getting up close and personal with others. There's a general unease with letting your guard down and letting people see the real you. And I'm sure that each of us could come up with a pretty good list as to why we don't share our lives with others. You know, I, I'm just a private person. You know, everybody's got problems of their own. They they don't want to hear mine. 
You know, I shared something personal with a close friend and they turned on me. And it was devastating. Nobody cares. I'm afraid that people won't like me if, I, if they see who the real me is or they might reject me. And the one that really, really rips me is I got burned in that church. doesn't help that social media can create a really a false narrative. We can present a public persona that has nothing to do with who we really are. Cool vacations, birthday parties, yummy baked goods, smiling happy people, living exciting lives. Absolutely no hint of what's going on behind the scenes. Social media allows us to carefully craft and control the message. And reveal only what shines the best possible light on our lives. Sure, those things are part of our lives, some of the joys. But that's not the whole picture. And they don't really accurately depict who we are as people. And God calls us into a deeper, more meaningful relation. He calls us into deeper and more meaningful relationships. Not only with himself, but with each other. God calls us to get uncomfortably close with one another. You know, not so many years ago, I was having a conversation with a pastor of the church that I was going through, uh, going with, and, and we, were, we were attending a conference, and, and we were having lunch, and I said, you know, I am, I'm, I'm looking for like a, like a different expression of church. And I wasn't really exactly sure what I was looking for. To me, it felt like church had become stagnant. Always the same thing. Always the same old programs, services. Always the same old people, week after boring week. Nothing ever changing. And I didn't know it then, but what I was looking for was really a deeper expression of Christian fellowship with others. I've grown up in the church, been in the church all my life. I have been, I've had a... a, New, Ruth and I sat and, and, and counted up how many churches we've been to. I won't tell you because you'll think, well, this guy's he's not a good Christian. Um, but we've been to a lot of places. Most of them were in like a five or ten year period. We, we, we really traveled around as we were moving around physically to different places. Um, I've been a Sunday school teacher. I've been a youth leader, a deacon, an elder. I've traveled around as a guest speaker. I've been a pastoral intern. And I've served as the pastor of a church. So after all of those experiences, I come to Restoration Church. Where do you think I would rank Restoration Church on the relational scale? Nobody wants to take a, <laughs> Nobody wants to make a comment. I would say that it's at the very top of the list. I've experienced relationship here at this church that I've never experienced before. Ruth and I love this church. Every Sunday, Ruth keeps reminding me, Colin, we don't need to leave this early. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to get there. You know, I want to be there because I want to interact with, with you people. 
And in some ways, and I'll say in some ways, because no church is perfect, right? And we're not perfect either. But in some ways, this church has become the embodiment of the kind of church that I have longed for all my life. Now, we can sit back and... I love these sayings. You have no idea what they mean. Rest on our laurels. I don't know. Like, when, is that when the Greek, when they gave them like those wreaths, the laurel wreath? You know, what, do you, what does it mean you're resting on? Because that doesn't sound very comfortable. But, you know, we can sit back and say, nailed it. Or we can take the attitude of the Apostle Paul and say, we're not there yet but we're pressing on towards it. Apostle Paul says this, not that I have already obtained it or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Unless we press on, unless we strain forward, we, Restoration Church, this wonderful place that we worship, is in danger of becoming a complacent, stagnant church. And trust me, Canada already has enough of them. So today, with that in mind, we're going to look at uh, today's passage, which is in John 17. And as you're looking up this, we are going to take a short break for a commercial. Have you ever wondered what the last will and testament of Jesus Christ was? This January at a church near you, the Upper Room Discourse. Answering the question, what would Jesus say to his closest friends if he knew he was going to die the very next day? Presenting a careful and detailed examination of the manuscript containing the last teaching session of Jesus. Restoration Church will be working through a series of sermons from John 13 to 17, those chapters known as the Upper Room Discourse. Be sure to set your dial. You won't want to miss this. I am super stoked about this, okay? John is my favorite book of the Bible, and the Upper Room Discourse, those chapters from John 13, where Jesus starts by washing the disciples' feet, all the way through 17, what we call his high priestly prayer, they're the favorite of my favorite. I love that. So, I'm not sure if I suggested it, but maybe I did. Maybe I got my way there. I don't know. (laughs) So just uh, as a little teaser, a bit of a, you know, just a bit of a peek into the upper room discourse, we're going to look at a portion of scripture tonight known as the high priestly prayer. When Jesus prays for his disciples and by faith prays for us as well. So John 17, verses 20 to 23. And Jesus, uh, we pick this up in the middle of Jesus' prayer. It's not typically how we preach here, but uh, I think it's a great passage. I do not ask, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, or all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, 
that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you have loved them, even as you have loved me. So just a few verses, but certainly packed with a lot of a lot of information. And as usual, when I come to these Sunday morning things, I think, if only I had an hour. One day I'm going to take an hour, and we'll see who's real spiritual. <laughs> um, anyways, so when we look at this, let's look at the five W's. Okay, everybody knows what the five W's are. Who, what, when, where, why. Who? The church. Verse 20. These and those who will believe in me through their word. That's the church. That's us. We're the ones who have believed through the apostles' teaching. What? That they will become one. Verse 21. That they may become one. Verse 23. That they may become perfectly one. When? It's now. It's today. Jesus says those who will believe. I think that's present tense. I think that means now. And where? In Christ. Verse 23, I and them. That, and verse 21 again, or sorry, first one, verse 23, verse 21, that they may also be in us. And why? So that the world may know and believe. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This is what Jesus is praying over Restoration Church. That today, we would be one with each other in the power of Christ. Just as God the Father and Jesus the Son are one, so that when the world looks on and they see the way that we act towards one another, they will understand the gospel. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I'm sure you're, you know, some people's reactions go, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second here. Are you telling me that how I act towards the person who is sitting right beside me has a direct impact on how non-Christians view the gospel? Well, I'm not saying it, but Jesus is. And in fact, that is his prayer for Restoration Church. The message of the gospel is both wonderfully and mysteriously wrapped up in us. The incarnation is seen in how we treat each other. When people will see how we act towards one one another, only, only one of two things is going to happen. Either they will see the love of God and the incarnation of Christ, or they won't. Aaron has already joked 
entitled this series, Uncomfortably Close. And for some of you, perhaps all of us, to some degree, this makes us uncomfortable. A few years ago, I took a, I took a marriage course with Ruth, and, and, and one of the, 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 the people who were doing, uh, doing the course, they, they, he gave this illustration, and he said, sometimes in your marriage, now, it doesn't happen to Ruth and I, so, but it may happen to you if you're married, that you bug your wife, right? Or she bugs you. Right or does things that you don't like, or you say something in public, you embarrass them, whatever. And you have to either, you have a choice. You can either do something about it, have a talk about it, or do nothing. And he said, you, sometimes you gotta go into the dark tunnel to come out into the light. And that's a little bit about what we're doing this morning. We're going to have a difficult talk about what this means We're going to kind of go into the dark tunnel, but I promise you that on the other side is the light, is the light of Christ. Jesus, so, you know, what what, what did Jesus mean when when he uses the term one? And Jesus himself, he gives us three criteria for what it means uh, to be one. Verse 21, that they may be one just as you and I, uh, you are in me and I in you. That's one way. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So first we, ha- we need to be clear when he says that they, we got to be really clear about who Jesus is talking about. I have answered that a little bit, but I want to just talk about it for a minute. Jesus prays for the apostles and for those who would believe through his word And he says in verse 20 that they all. This is the church universal. Everyone in it, including the local expression of the church, which is Restoration Church. Now, if that's not clear enough, it means you. If you have placed your faith in Christ and you call Restoration Church your Home church, it's you. I'll put some flesh and bones on that. It's Aaron. It's a leadership team. It's all of the volunteers that make Sunday happen. It's the setup team. It's the worship team. It's the kids team. It's the welcome team. It's the sound team. And as uncomfortable as this sounds, and I'm not trying to point anybody out, but it also means you, if you slip in, one minute before the service starts, which is somewhere around 10 after 10, but we're never quite sure, okay? But it means you, if you slip in the church one, one minute before the service and you make a beeline for the door after it's over, not engaging with anyone. This means if you consider Restoration Church, and I'm speaking to those online, that if you consider Restoration church, your home church, but you only watch online. It means you. You know, in in my job, I I do contracts. I negotiate contracts. I get a lot of legal stuff. The lawyers are all, I'm always up to my eyeballs in lawyers. Sorry if anyone's a lawyer. Um, And what they do is they they do what they call a carve-out, okay? So 
Um, and I'm only thinking in terms of, of what I do, but it would say something like this. So we, we, we enter into an agreement that says we're going to rent space for five years. At the end of five years, we might say something like the tenant shall have the option to renew the lease for a further period of five years, save and accept the rent. So that's a carve out. So what that means is that in five years, we're going to, we, we can exercise that option, say we're going to stay for another five years, but we've got to negotiate the rent. Here's what you need to know. I don't see any carve-outs in what Jesus says here. I don't see any carve-outs. There is no carve-out for inconspicuous, discreet fellowship in a local church. And Jesus... Pr- Jesus' prayer is that all would move toward greater relational connection in the church. He's very specific in his words, and he says all. The second thing that we need to be clear about is what does oneness look like? If we're going to say we've got to be one, we have to understand what he's talking about here. And again, Jesus gives the answer. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Verse 22, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me. What does that oneness look like? Well, it looks like the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Now, no one can fully know what that entails because God is, is perfect in every way and because we are flawed and because we're human, we're never going to really be able to gaze right into that relationship and understand all of it, all that it says. However, the scriptures do give us some insight into what that relationship looks like. So let me give you three examples. And there's more. It's not an exhaustive exhaustive list. We we only have so much time. Number one, example number one, God is the God of disclosure. He speaks, he communicates, he shares, he conveys so that we might know him. You know, from a human perspective, God is completely unknowable. If God chose to, he could may remain completely shrouded in mystery and invisibility. But in speaking, God reveals himself. God, through the word, which is another name for Jesus, opens his mouth and brings the unseen nature of his character out of the darkness and into the light. God is a communicating God, and Jesus is the very word of God. Aaron already read these verses together today. They're, they're worth repeating. John 1, in the beginning was the word, was, was, was Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John Chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has explained the Father to us in grace and truth. 
In verse 18, he says this. No one has ever seen God. The only God, which is at the Father's side, again, that means Jesus, he has made him known. God is a, a God who discloses. We look at Hebrews and he says this. He says, a long time ago, or long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. God didn't just send messengers. God wanted to have direct contact and communication with men. He wanted to disclose his character to us so much so that he sent his son to reveal what God was like and to tell us how we might be saved from our sin. And those who hear the message, there is the promise of eternal communion with God. God is going to be disclosing himself to those who love him for an eternity because God exists in eternity. We can't know everything about him. We're finite. I mean, 10,000 years from now, the Lord's going to tell us something about himself that we don't know. To know and be known. And you and I we can sit beside each other in church for years and never know one another in any significant, meaningful way. Unless we open up our mouths and disclose who we are in authentic communication, our lives will remain a mystery and will be unknown to each other. Here's the uncomfortable proof, proof or uncomfortable truth. Jesus is actually praying that you won't be that kind of person. And the New Testament is replete with encouragement for us to get into one another's lives. From a couple of weeks ago, Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ that says, by this will all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. How can you share my burdens if I keep it to myself. The truth is you can't. Paul was writing to the, to the Roman Christians and he said, I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. How can we mutually encourage one another's faith if your life remains private and unknown. The truth is, it can't. It can't happen. The Father and the Son know each other perfectly. And they know, and they are both, uh, uh, they are one in their knowledge of each other, and they're one in their desire to be known. How many people in this church know your story? Have you shared your spiritual journey with anyone? Who do you share your burdens with? Being one means knowing others and being known by them. Example number two, their commitment to one another's glory. 
Jesus starts off, so we're in the middle of this high priestly prayer, but he starts off the high priestly prayer with this. And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus was committed to the glory of his father, so much so that he was willing to suffer the shame of the cross we see him praying in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If we're to be one as a church, we need to be mutually committed to the glory of God, the Father, and the glory of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we worship together, as we talk with one another, as we minister to each other, In all things, God must have the glory. But we also need to understand that in some mysterious way that God has given you and I some of that glory. He says in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. What is this glory that Jesus gives to us? It's the glory of a new life. It's the beauty of the image of Christ stamped on our lives. It's not our glory. It's the glory of the Lord in us. We are to reflect this glory in how we love one another. If we love the Lord, then there's going to also be a desire to see our brothers and sisters living in a way that glorifies the Lord. We will take a particular interest in their spiritual development. We will encourage them to grow in the Lord. We will pray for them. We will love them with purpose. And we will rejoice when their lives reflect a deeper and more intimate relationship with the Lord. Take a minute. Have a look around the have a look around the room. I give you permission. <laughs> Who are you praying for? Who are you encouraging in the faith? Who's encouraging you? That's what Jesus is praying over this church. The third example is Jesus voluntarily submits to the Father. In Jesus, we have the exact model for how we ought to submit to one another in the church. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Christ didn't selfishly hang on to his glory. The glory that he enjoyed for eternity past with God the Father, he gave it up. His life was marked by submission to the Father, not in self-interest and self-promotion. Oh, how that, how that differs from what the Word tells us, right? 
grab all you can, be, you know, be all that you can be, you, got, you know, find your own destiny, you know, march to the tune of your own drum, whatever. We know it, right? But that wasn't Jesus' life. Jesus cho- chose servanthood over being served. Jesus chose the cross in submission to the Father over earthly greatness that he had every right to claim. But that's not the end of the story. Because it says, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we act in deference and submission to one another, we're acting out the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ to others. And when the world sees it, they ought to see the incarnation of Christ so that the world may know that that you sent me and that you love them even as you have loved me. Acting in humble servanthood is not easy. (laughs) Sometimes you have to do things that are uncomfortable. And sometimes when you act like a servant, people start to treat you like a servant. But we never look more like Christ than when we're serving one another, which is a visible demonstration of the incarnation for the world to see. Who was Jesus praying for? He was praying for us. He was praying for Restoration Church. What does oneness look like? It should model the relationship between Jesus and his Father. And finally, how on earth are we going to do this? Well, we do it in the strength of Christ. Jesus in us, empowering us to act as his representatives here on earth. The empowerment that Jesus gives us is different than the empowerment that your boss gives you in the, in the workplace. That just means you're, you have permission. <laughs> no, the empowerment that Jesus comes is Christ in us. The only way that we can be one with the Father and the Son is in the oneness, is in the power of Christ who abides through us, in us, through his Spirit. If we at Restoration Church, if we get this, the world is going to look on and marvel at our practical demonstration of the Incarnation. And no, no slam against any Christmas programs, but I can tell you it'll be far more effective than the slickest multimedia Christmas presentation pageant that we can, that we can do because we will be acting out the prayer that Jesus prays over this church so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let's pray. Lord, these are uncomfortable words. There is no question. Would you help us to digest them? Would you, through your spirit, help us to live them out? Would we be a church that is not satisfied with what, where we are now, but would we strain forward? Would we press on? 
Would we look, Lord, to grow in oneness with you and oneness with each other? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.